that song. I need thee every hour. Hmm. <laughs> Warms my heart. Every, I don't know, you, you get that with songs? You're like, oh yeah, this is a good one. <clears throat> that song gets me in the feels. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this evening where we can gather and worship, where we can sing your praises, where we can approach you in prayer, where we can hear from you in your word. Lord, give us ears to listen. Give us hearts that are willing to be shaped. Make us people who can identify you and help us to worship you. Lord, we, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your promise of forgiveness, for the work that you've done on the cross through Jesus Christ, and the promise that we have that this is not the way it will always be. You have redeemed us from our sin, and we are set free. Lord, we are grateful for this community, this community that holds us up, this community that we get to worship with, this community that is sometimes hurting. Lord, we think of those who have some really difficult physical stuff going on right now, whether it means they're in the hospital or they're just in a lot of pain. And we think of those who are struggling with depression or anxiety, sadness, homesickness. Lord, we lift them up. We sing on their behalf when they can't sing. We pray on their behalf when they can't pray. And that's the beauty of this community. Help us to lean into that. Lord, we pray for your world. We pray for those who do not have a home, for those who are refugees, for those who are running, Lord, bring comfort, bring your peace to this world that needs it so desperately. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray that we might be able to discern what is right and best. Shape our loves so that we may be able to discern what is right and best. There's a lot at stake with this political uh, environment that we're in. Lord, give us discernment. Help us to be able to speak wisdom into these situations. Help us to be able to speak peace and love. Help us to know where we're compromising. Convict us, Lord. And Lord, as we continue to worship through the reading of your word, Make us attentive. Attend with us by your Holy Spirit, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. So tonight, we get to read about the beast and the 666. Easy, right? Uh, that's found in Revelation 13. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So all the way in the back, page 1002, 
if you care to follow along. It's worthwhile to follow along. Those are the black books somewhere near you. Page 1002. So we actually, in that heading there, it's, it says chapter 13, and then sectioned with it is verse 18 from chapter 12. I'm going to read that as well. So we're going to start right there. <clears throat> Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, or crowns. And on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dra dragon gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive into captivity, you go. If you kill with a sword, with a sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. That exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it is allowed to perform on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image to be killed. It also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this whole chapter is a parody 
It's actually chapters 12 through 14 are kind of like this. Uh, they were explained as like a operatic interlude because we had the seven seals that came before, right? And then all of a sudden in 12 through 14, it's like the hinge point. It's right in the middle. And it, it shows this kind of dramatic thing that's happening. This, we're, we're kind of given a, a, a slideshow or a movie or some kind of um, musical, maybe. I, I don't know if it's a musical. But uh, uh, some kind of operatic interlude that says, here's what's going on. Let me, let me show you what's going on. And chapter 13 is kind of like one of those SNL skits that makes fun of whatever it's supposed to be. It's like a bad imitation. And it, the bad imitation is supposed to show you how kind of stupid this whole thing is. Like, Jimmy Fallon dresses up and, and does these skits, and it's to say, here's how this really sounds to everyone, right? And, and he does it for a point. It's to say, it's an imitation. It's not the real thing. This is dumb. Don't believe it, right? Or d use some discernment here. This is how it really sounds. So a parody is, is kind of a bad imitation for comedic effect or to, to make a point. And the imagery here in Revelation 13 would have been clear to Jewish Christians in these churches, these seven churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They would have been transparent allusions to what's going on. There, we'll, we'll get to that, uh, but, but let me introduce the characters to you a little bit first. There's first the dragon, there's the first beast, the second beast, and although it's not technically a character, it's important, the mark of 666. So we have four things going on. And last week, Pastor Mary talked about the dragon. Right? And the dragon, as we saw in chapter 12, is Satan. It says in 12 verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan. This is who it is who was cast down to, the, to earth. At the end of uh, chapter 12, it talks about, then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So this is where it's situated. The dragon sets himself down on the seashore, and then he gives authority. So the dragon is, represents the powers of chaos, and these powers of chaos come in direct contrast with the creator God. So we have the dragon, and then we get to the first beast. The first beast is uh, mentioned in verses 1 and 2. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on its horns were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave its power, gave it his power and his throne and great authority. This beast came up out of the sea. That, that can sound kind of scary. But really what this was, was it was a representation of the Roman Empire. Because geographically, for anyone from Rome to, to get to these seven churches, where these seven churches were, they would have had to come by sea. They would have had to come by boat. They would have to come east. 
and land on the seashore. So literally anyone who was coming from the Roman Empire, particularly the emperor, the, the, the person who is representing the Roman Empire, he'd have to come by sea on a boat. So he would literally come by sea, out of the sea. And it talks about this beast had horns, ten horns. And in, in past weeks, we've talked about how the horns represent power. Horns often represent kings, kings who uh, rule with authority, kings who have power, kings who have privilege, kings who use that power and privilege, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. And they have blasphemous names written on their heads. This is meant to say they would claim deity. They would say, I am Nero. I am a son of the god, Apollo. I am Apollo, the god Apollo. They would claim divinity. They would even write this on their coins. Uh, Nero did this. He, he put this on his coins so that all the coins in the Roman Empire, anytime you were like buying groceries, you'd have to be like 10, 20, 30. Oh, yeah, Nero is God. And it's just like kind of a, a, a normal thing. You'd have to read that every time you were paying for something, new sandals, new like groceries, anything like that. You'd have to acknowledge that, that Nero is God. Caesar is God. Augustus is God. And they did this too with, with statues. There were, were images that they knew of, like this, the way that this person was standing, like this, this was godlike or something. Um, and so they would take that, that statue, this godlike statue, and then they just kind of like Photoshop the face of the current emperor on there. So, well, they didn't have Photoshop, but, <laughs> but they, would, they would take the, the person who was sculpting it, would take the, the emperor's face and put it on there. And it was basically saying, I am God, worship me. They were claiming divinity. They were desiring worship, demanding worship. And so this, this beast with uh, ten, ten horns, seven heads, and crowns, that, that would have been familiar to Jewish Christians living in this, in this region because they would have read Daniel. Daniel 7, there's like an identical beast that, that comes up out of the sea. This is, this is something that, that they would have been familiar with. This identical beast represented an empire, a historical empire. Because in Daniel, the Jewish people, the Israelites and the Judean king, had just been taken over by the Babylonian king. They'd been taken into exile, and, and they are they're captive. And this beast represents the empire. So this would have been understood right away. Oh, beast, empire. Beast with, uh, you know, claiming to be God, that kind of sounds like the Roman Empire. We'll, we'll, we'll keep reading. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to, be, seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. So this, one of the heads seemed to have received a death blow. This was a transparent allusion to Nero. Nero, who had ruled the Roman Empire, he had committed suicide by stabbing himself in the throat. And it was, uh, he, he did die, but 
throughout the Roman Empire and elsewhere, after his death, there were rumors. Rumors that he didn't actually die. I, I saw him the other week on the, on the road. You wouldn't have believed it, but I saw him. I really did. And then the stories kind of kept going. The gossip continued. The rumors, the stories, they kind of snowballed. I kind of imagined it turned into like that telephone game that you sometimes play, and at the end, it's like this ridiculous thing. Nero actually had ten horns, and he was, you know, wearing a crown, and anyway, probably not. But, um, but the, the, the reality was that the Roman Empire was struggling. The Roman Empire, after, after Nero, had went through four emperors in a year. This was the, like a lot of turnover. They were going through a lot of political turmoil, leadership change, regime change, all that kind of stuff was happening in the, in the midst of this. So the empire was struggling, but they used Nero's story, this god-like king who died and came back from the dead as their rallying cry. They used Nero's story to try to maintain power and control. And this story kind of sounds like something we've heard before, right? A, a king who, was, who died and then came back from the dead. And it's interesting, too, because the, the idea of Nero having his throat cut, it's a sacrificial lamb. In the Old Testament, when you would sacrifice a lamb, you would slit its throat, and it would uh, be, become the sacrifice for you. Jesus is referred to the lamb. And so these things that, that are being said about who Nero is, they were in direct contrast to who Jesus is and trying to compete with it. So they were trying to use Nero's story. And Nero was also someone who the Christians at this time would have been quick to blame or point the finger to because Nero had persecuted them. Nero was, was really terrible to Christians. Uh, that fire that destroyed Rome, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Any history people might be able to, to fill you in on the details of that. But the, the fire that destroyed Rome, Nero tried to blame that on the Christians. He had to try to find some scapegoat for this fire. So he blamed it on the Christians and then persecuted for them for that. He punished them for that and said, the Christians are to blame. Let's punish them. So Nero would have been this, this kind of transparent illusion in this, uh, this setting. And the first beast would represent the Roman Empire, this historical empire, this empire that is not of God. So moving on to verses 5 through 7. It says, the beast was given a, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Now, this, this 42 months, it's, it's three and a half years. Last week, Pastor Mary told us that the 1,260 days mentioned in the last chapter is also three and a half years. It's basically saying, this is another way of, of, of reiterating, for three and a half years, this is going to be the, the, the way it is. And maybe not a literal three and a half years, but three and a half is half of seven. Seven is the number of completion. It's basically to say, 
This three and a half years is, is a, a, but an episode, a blip on the radar, especially compared to the thousand-year reign that's described of, of Christ later in Revelation. Three and a half compared to a thousand? Come on. That's really nothing. It's an it's a episode. He has no power. He has no authority. So that's this 42 months thing. We'll come back to verses 8 through 10. But at 11, then I saw, at 11 we get the second beast. So then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all of the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. So this second beast represents the local people. It comes out of the earth, right? If the first beast came out of the sea and represented someone of authority, the, the second beast comes up out of the earth, represents the local authorities, the local political leaders, the local movers and shakers, people who had power, right? And so these were people who were actually just riding the wave of, of Rome's power. They were just needing to parrot, echo whatever Rome was saying so that they didn't get in trouble. Because they knew if they went against what Rome was saying, they were next. They would disappear. So it was given the authority of the first beast to perform signs and, and miracles. Actually, what they were doing, these local leaders were actually hiring illusionists and magicians they were, they were doing these things so that uh, they could assume power, so that they could say, look, we have power too. They were doing these, these miracles and signs through illusionists. They would actually make statues that would weep and images that could talk, these portraits of things that could talk. And uh, it was actually, it's actually been revealed in, in modern scholarship that there were actually like pagan instruction booklets for how to make these things, how to make statues weep and how to make uh, the, the portraits talk. It's, it's kind of like, uh, I, I would imagine they had like weeping statues one-on-one and they'd you know, teach you how to do this. And uh, introduction to making portraits talk. And they would probably save the, the pyrotechnics, the fire from the sky, for like the advanced level classes, I'm guessing, because they didn't want to burn stuff down. Uh, I would hope that they would save the pyrotechnics for, for last. Uh, but they would, they would hire illusionists. They, would, they hyped Nero's story. I don't know if you, you caught this, but twice in this section, verse 12 and 14, I didn't read through 14, but... In, in 12 and 14, it, it talks about, the, it talks about the, the first beast whose mortal wound had been healed. And in 14, again, the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. They were, they were hyping this story. They were telling this story a lot. And they were really trying to make sure that people knew about Nero and the possibility of him coming back and reigning and being king, Right? So these were, these were imitations that looked good, that were really impressive, that made people want to join in, that made people want to like 
they got, they got something good going on. I mean, they can call down fire. They can make this portrait talk. Why shouldn't I join them? Why shouldn't I do, like, worship, send my worship this way instead of this way? This looks pretty good. So then this, this second beast also does one other important thing. It, it, it marks people on the forehead or on the hand with the name of the beast or the number of the name of the beast. This is the number 666. And this is also another transparent allusion to Nero. And this is, this is something that, that um, uh, is explained by gematria or gematria. I am not entirely sure how to say that word. So I'm just going to confidently say gematria. <laughs> and you all have to believe me because I'm up here. <laughs> and this is... This is using letters to represent numbers. This was done a lot in this day and age, in John's time and place. It was, it was used a lot. It's kind of like Roman numerals. If you know what Roman numerals are, V equals 5, X equals 10, C equals 100, those kinds of things. Every letter had a numerical value, and therefore every name or word also had a numerical value based on adding up all of those letters numbers, etc. So when you added up Nero's name, guess what you get? 666. Yeah. So the, this was the number, and, and, and the people would immediately recognize, oh, that's Nero. That's got to be him. If they weren't already convinced, based on the first beast and the, the, the Roman Empire, this would have given them absolute certainty. This is the mark. This is the Roman Empire. And the, the mark was also kind of a common occurrence in, in this time and place. And for, for going to the marketplace, you had to have a mark on your forehead or on your right hand to be able to go to the marketplace in the first place. There would be people who would, um, who would check to make sure that you had, had this mark. And... And you would only get the mark if you made your sacrifices, if you made your offerings, if you made your worship to the Roman emperor. If you went to the temple, if you brought your incense, if you brought your, your grain offering, if you brought your money, only then would you get the mark. And that meant that you could go and, and trade in the marketplace. If you didn't have this mark, well, it meant that you went hungry because you weren't going to go to the marketplace. And then that you didn't get that new pair of sandals or a blanket or a tent or whatever you were hoping for, you were cut off economically if you didn't have this mark. So there were economic implications for not making offerings to the emperor. Offerings to the emperor affected this week's groceries. That was real. So there were economic pressures, and economic pressures can affect worship. It can, it can mean that, that you try to make a compromise for a week and say, okay, well, I really need this deal to go through. I'm trying to make a deal with this guy in the marketplace, and he's trying to do something, you know, off the books for me, but I, I, I really need to make face and, and show up at his at his booth at least once, so I'm going to have to go to the emperor, and, or I'm going to have to go and, and uh, make offerings to the emperor. 
and, and do my worship thing there so that I can make this deal happen, so that I can feed my family, or that I can clothe my family. And you were tempted to make compromises. You were tempted to, to worship someone other than Jesus. And you were also tempted to, to say, well, okay, well, it, 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 he demands our worship, but there's a lot of other good things that this Roman Empire does for us. It, it provides this structure for us. Why not worship the emperor at least a little bit? Why not say thank you by worshiping the emperor just a little bit? That way I can get my groceries and do my thing. You can make compromises that way too. But the text here says something different. The text says, be faithful. Have patient endurance. Be faithful. They're going to make you try to worship. They're going to make you try to worship the beast. They're going to make you worship the beast. But being faithful is the way to overcome the beast. Having patient endurance is the way to overcome the beast. There, there are things that will, will compete for our allegiances. And I think that's what this passage is all about. Well, most of this passage. This passage is about competing allegiances. So I think that you could, you could sum up this whole chapter by saying, here are some things that compete with Jesus and how to identify them. Here's some things that, that compete. Don't fall for them. They're imitations. They're fakes. Don't do it. Because they promise happiness. They promise temporary happiness. And they demand your allegiance. But they don't, they can't actually promise joy. They can't actually promise life fulfillment. They can't promise a whole lot besides Groceries for this week. They can't promise a lot. Don't fall for it. I was having a conversation with my brother a few years ago. And we were talking about uh, the return of Jesus. You know, as you usually do casually, right? You talk about the return of Jesus. And, and I said, Stefan, uh, are you... Are you anxious for the return of Jesus? Like, what if, what if Jesus were to come back tomorrow? Would you be excited about that? And he was like, yeah. And I said, really? He's like, well. He said, if I'm honest, I'm not sure. I said, good, because if I'm honest, I'm, I'm feeling the same way. I'm not all that excited about Jesus coming back because I'd like to get married I'd like, to, I'd like to know what it's like to be married. I'd like to know what it's like to have kids. I'd like to go and have adventures. I'd like to, I'd like to experience these big, life-changing things. I, honestly, I'm not all that excited about Jesus coming back. And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I want to travel. I want to see the world. There are a lot of things that I want to accomplish before Jesus comes back. There are a lot of things that I want to experience before Jesus comes back. And really, that's, that's something that 
we, we should want, right, this Jesus to come back soon. We should want this. We should be anxious for it. We should be excited about it. Jesus, come back tomorrow. Come back right now. Please. But we don't get excited about that because deep down, we're, we're a little bit selfish. We're a lot selfish sometimes. We're after our own happiness. We're after our own desires. We're not after, we're not always after fulfilling joy. We were putting these things, the, the, the promise of marriage, the promise of kids, the promise of adventure and, and traveling the world before God. And we were putting it before God's kingdom. We were speaking out of privilege. We were speaking out of power. I really haven't seen a lot of hardship in my own life. And if the biggest thing in front of me is to get married or to have kids and not Jesus' kingdom, there's, I'm putting something else before God and before God's kingdom. So it's easy to say, <laughs> these idiots... They worship their empire. They worship their government. They worship these, these other things. They, they, they worship the, the, these, these things that promise them power. They worship this, this emperor because, you know, he had his face photoshopped onto something like this. They're idiots, right? But, but we do it too. We don't necessarily carve things into shapes like this. We... But we make idols. We make, we worship other things. We, we set up idols like our GPA. We set up idols like our status. Educational status or athletic status or social status. We set up idols of politics, Republican or Democrat or independent, right? We set up these idols, and we say, it's this way or no way. I have too much to lose if this goes away. And we protect our idols like this, because we think our idols will protect us. We think that, that they'll come to our aid when we need it, but really, they're going to exploit us. They're going to use us. They're going to make us blind to the world. They'll make us blind to Syrian refugees. They'll make us blind to the war in South Sudan. They make us blind. So in this text, God pulls back the curtain. God pulls back the curtain and says, see, behind here, the only thing behind this, this curtain, this facade, is the devil. And he wants to take you down. The only thing that's behind here is Satan, and he's already lost. So don't believe him. That's where we get the good news. In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, it talks about, Everyone whose name has been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. 
kind of t sets it in the negative. It says, and all, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it, that is the first beast, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slaughtered. This is the good news. God is pulling back the curtain and shining a light on Jesus, the real lamb. You see that capital L there, the lamb? This is the real lamb. This is who deserves our worship. This is who can, can ultimately fulfill us. This is who promises us actual deep joy. The real lamb. And he's pulling back the curtain on the imitation. God is saying, the victory has already been won. You, you read that in chapter, in chapter 12. This victory, this battle, it's already been fought and won. God won, expelled Satan, and, it, as, and, and we can claim that victory. And he says, actually, you've already been sealed too. You already have a mark. You don't need this mark. In chapter 7, if you still have your Bibles open, chapter 7 in verse 3, it says, Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. This is the mark of the Lamb. This is the mark of the living God. He has already sealed you. He has already sealed you. He's already put his mark on you. You don't need this other mark. It's already, you've already been sealed. The battle has already been won. And our names, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in the book of life. We are those people. We belong to the Lamb. And Revelation 13 is like a roadmap for being able to say, this is what's real and this is what's fake. Let me pull back the curtain for you to be able to show you the fakeness so that you can see the realness. Because the imitation might look like it has power and authority and dominion. It might have a large following, but it's really just an empty shell. It's temporary. They're, they're really tempting, but they're, but they're brief. They're episodic. They have no real lasting power. So, Revelation 13, I was talking to, to Pastor Mary about this text in preparation, and she said, you know what, I think Revelation 13 is it's kind of like Antiques Roadshow. And I, I thought, okay, I'm, I know that that's a TV show, but I don't really know much else. So I had Googled it and found out more about it and learned that it's, uh, it's a show that does appraisals for antiques. People will bring in stuff that they found in their attic, stuff that previous homeowners put up there and then forgot about. And they'll bring these things in and they'll be appraised. Sometimes people will bring in something that they think is worth a lot of money and the, the, the people there, the curators say, yeah, this is worth like 25 cents. It's really not worth that much. 
And there are other times people would bring in this, this thing, it's still kind of dirty, they'll plop it down on the table and say, what is this worth? And they're like, that's worth a half a million dollars. And I'm like, really? And so it's, it's basically the antiques roadshow of, of the Bible. The, Revelation 13 is the antiques roadshow. It's basically we bring these things before God, and God shines a light on them. God shines a light on Jesus so that we can see what's real and what's fake. God shines a light on Jesus, the Lamb, who is there from the beginning of the world, from creation, who has written your name in the book of life. And God pulls back the curtain and says, see, he's the real thing, this is the fake. God does this for us. God shines a light. God helps us to discern what is real from what is fake. Because the fake and, and the fake things, the idols, have already been defeated. They've already been conquered. And they're not worth your worship. They're not worth your worship. Maybe it's your GPA. Maybe it's status connected to what kind of phone you have or what kind of computer you have or what kind of job you get in the future. There are competing stories that are ultimately sealed already. Competing stories for your attention, for your worship, and they fall flat. So this text calls for wise discernment. And, and wise discernment here says you get to participate in the conquering of the beast. When you wisely discern and don't give power to this thing that's behind the curtain, you take away its power. By not joining with it, you take away its power. By naming it for what it is, you take away its power. By shining a light on Jesus, you give the power to the right place. You show what is worth following, what is worth worshiping. So it calls us to wisdom and patient endurance. It calls us to faithfulness. So when everyone else around you is walking this way, for the beast, you're walking this way for the lamb. Patient endurance, faithfulness. It's not easy, but it's your participation in the conquering of the beast. So this community gets to shine a light on who Jesus is. This community together, we get to shine a light on who Jesus is and identify the fakes. This table shines a light on who Jesus is and helps identify the imitations, the things that promise salvation and happiness but ultimately fall flat. This table is the table of the Lamb. This is your table. You belong here because the Lamb has won, is winning and will win. Will you pray with me? Lord, you ask us to be discerning. You ask us to be careful and faithful. You ask us 
to shine a light on Jesus and expose the fakes. We ask that you give us wisdom for this task ahead. We ask that you might be able to show us the ways in which we're making idols of things that shouldn't be, that we shouldn't be worshiping. Lord, help us to identify those idols and cast them aside. Help us to identify idols in our friends' lives, in our families' lives, and help them overcome them. Help us to call each other to faithful endurance, to patience. Give us strength for this journey. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, this is your table. Because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, God calls you by name at this table. He says, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. He calls you by name. The Lord Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, took bread. And after giving thanks to God, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant sealed in my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the saving death of the risen Lord until he comes again.